listening to so much pingle the podcast about herpetology field herping and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles join us each week as mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet and now bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone here's your host mike pingleton Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And this is episode 37 for those of you playing along at home. It's good to talk with you all again, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy. And uh, hopefully many of you are getting your vaccine doses, and uh, maybe one day the pandemic will no longer be a topic on podcasts that are not about pandemics. New patrons of the show, I want to give a big thank you to Tom Ellis up in Ontario. Thank you for your PayPal contribution, Tom, and I hope we get a chance to hang out again this year, uh, maybe October. And thanks, as always, to all of my supporters. Uh, You helped to keep this uh, herpetological juggernaut moving forward, and I appreciate it. Now, before we get to our guests, I want to give a little shout-out to John Edward and his daughter Ari. They came down from Wisconsin this week to do a little herping in my neck of the woods, and we had an enjoyable day out in the field despite a lot of rain. And I want to give extra props to Ari, who is almost seven, and uh, we walked more than five miles that day, and she hung in there like a champ. And uh, she didn't want to leave at the end. She wanted to stay in the woods. So that's my kind of kid. Now let's get to this week's guest. 
Robert Villa and I have corresponded over the years, but we've never met, and so I look forward to having a nice chat with him, and we sure did. Robert is interested in all kinds of different subjects, and, you know, that makes him interesting as well. And we talked about so many different things that it's it's kind of hard to characterize the show, but at the core of it all is the toad, and more specifically, the, the Sonoran Desert Toad, and everything else that we just discussed is related to it in some way. So let's get to my talk with Robert Villa. Hello again, folks, and welcome back to the show. On today's episode, I am talking to Robert Villa. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, Robert, you and I, uh, we, we've never met, but we've sort of corresponded for uh, a very long time, probably longer than both of us care to mention, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's finally good to see your face on the video screen here and, and have an opportunity to sit down and chat with you. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. And you, you, uh, you live out in the Tucson area, is that correct? Yeah, I live uh, born and raised in Tucson. Okay. So uh, before we get into our, our subjects this, this evening, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, so my name is Robert Villa. Um, I'm 35 years old. I was born and raised in Tucson, Arizona. Um, up until very recently, I'm a self-taught naturalist, herpetologist, botanist, and I really love the Sonoran Desert and everything about it. And uh, I freelance as a violinist, and I currently am a research associate at the Desert Laboratory uh, at the University of Arizona. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, well, that I didn't know. So let's, let's start off with that. What, what do you do as a research associate there? Well, um, because of my interest in plants, and which came out of herpetology, um, came from my love of herpetology, I started working as the uh, garden and greenhouse curator, and uh, I was just volunteering. Uh, the Desert Laboratory is um, the birthplace of Sonoran Desert Ecology, and desert ecology in general it was built in 1906 or 1903, excuse me, by the Carnegie Institute, and it's the reason why the Saguaro's Latin name is Carnegia Gigantia. Um, oh, no kidding. Yeah. So uh, in 1903, these were state-of-the-art labs in the middle of nowhere as far as civilization was concerned. And Tucson was, was a hitching post, and some folks from the New York Botanical Gardens were looking to establish a series of research stations on behalf of the Carnegie Institute and uh, Daniel McDougall one of the directors and curators at the New York Botanical Garden had been all over desert places in the world. And the first place they visited was Tucson. But after all those other places, they came back to Tucson because Tucson had a railroad. There was uh, a modicum of, um, of communication and amenities and such. And that really began, that was sort of the seed of my uh, academic background, even though I'm, I just started college. I got a scholarship recently. But everything that I know about the Sonoran Desert and all of my involvement in Sonoran Desert, herpetology, botany, natural history, can be traced to uh, the Desert Laboratory. And uh, 
So that's that's where I work. I have a, a little office and a greenhouse and a and a garden. So if you're ever in Tucson, be very happy to show anybody around. Oh, cool. Now, before we go a little further, yeah. I'm getting a little microphone scratch. Oh, and it's either, yeah, and you're getting a little beard scratch there, which I know all about. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'll cut all this out. But anyway. Okay, that's that sounds very cool, and uh, um, you got me interested in, in uh, visiting because uh, it sounds like a pretty cool place to work. And so that that place just sort of gave you a um, an, uh, a bit of enlightenment about many different things. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm going to guess that a lot of folks who listen to your podcast also have a, an interest in other things, even maybe plants. And there's always been this parallel or this trend of herpers getting into weird plants and ah. especially desert herpers because there's weird plants when they're when you're herping there's interest there's other interesting things to that you notice and academically even my mentors tom van devender was started off as a as a hardcore herpetologist and then became pivotal, a uh, very important botanist, still is an important botanist in the region, but herps are sort of the, <laughs> I call them the gateway drug to all the other <laughs> awesome things. And so now when I'm out in the field, I'm looking at everything. I'm, well, I mean, herps herps and, and plants both uh, teach you about things like drainages mm-hmm. and soils and and uh, wind direction, all kinds of crazy things yes. that you never would have thought of before, right? Right, right. Well, one of the, um, this is all, every, all of this is tied into kind of, I'm not going to be able to get this out of the conversation, but it's tied to the desert lab. One of the um, coolest things uh, that happened on the desert lab was the development of fossil pack rat midden analysis. Now, oh. So that was that was a field of study that was developing at the same time as tree ring dating and um, glacial core coring to give us an idea of what the past environment was like, the climate and all of this. Well, with fossil pack rats, pack rats will build their nests out of whatever's around them, and in their nest is the midden, which is where they go to the bathroom or throw their trash. And over the, uh-huh. over the course of many generations, thousands of years, though the urine and the feces crystallize and they preserve the, what the, the materials that the pack rat made their houses out of. And so if you're lucky enough to find one of these things uh, and uh, analyze the contents Uh, let's say in the Sonoran Desert, you would probably see plants that are not there anymore. Things like junipers and oaks. And and it's really a neat picture of the past. (laughs) Uh, Oddly enough, uh, crazily enough, frozen in pack rat urine. (laughs) But but not just plants, but like, uh, you know, uh, lizard scales and bones, herps, herp artifacts as well. And oh, cool. uh, so, yeah, and then we radiocarbon date to get an exact age on that. And we can overlay that with long-term climate data and 
see what, you know, the tree ring scientists are reading around that time and the events and uh-huh. uh, carbon dating. And here's another really wild thing. So we can date things based on the carbon that's contained in their cells. Yeah, carbon-14 is an isotope of right. carbon. Right. Yes, yeah, thank you. And yeah. so um, that's a wild fact. But, you know, herpetologists also will use stable isotopes from other chemicals to date uh, rattle segments and rattlesnakes uh-huh. or, um, or things like that. So that's pretty cool. And diets. Yeah, I, I guess the only bad thing is is that in order to, to pull the knowledge from a pack rat nest, you have, to, you have to kind of take it apart, don't you? That is a stinky, awful process. <laughs> but anyways, I got off and on I a su- tangent. I suppose that you can, there's pollen that you can analyze and exactly. other, other things as well. Right? You got so it. you're bringing in a lot of different disciplines for that. Totally. Know? And that's the, that's the beauty. That's the, to me that is all these different fields of study that come together to answer a uh, broad question. It's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, like what the desert was like when, you well, know, say, uh, post-glacial times. Right. Uh, or pre-glacial times, I should say. Ground slobs were still hanging out with desert tortoises and Gila monsters. Now, that's a landscape I'd like to see. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys can have the dinosaurs. I I would love to go back to, to that time period in North America. Yeah, and if you if you come to the desert lab, uh, when everything's safe, uh, I could I can show you real fossil not fo- well fossilized ground sloth dung, which looks like it had been laid yesterday or a week ago. Uh, wow. it, well, not that that early, but it's it's intact, and you can you can see what it ate. Um, wow, what what did they eat? Uh, lots of Mormon tea ephedra. Oh, really? So it must have been really abundant um, and other things. So uh, I know it, ephedra gets its name. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's a stimulant, right? Yeah, um, it's a, it is a stimulant, and I forget if, what type of stimulant it is, but uh, it gives you a buzz, and yeah. uh, I guess the Mormons liked it because <laughs> it wasn't yeah. alcohol Right, right, but I'm wondering if the uh, I wonder if the sloths oh. if it had any uh, physiological effect on the sloths as I well. I wonder. I wonder. If you consume a metric ton of Mormon tea, does that have any effect on your heart rate and maybe your outlook on life? Well, it should would for me. <laughs> 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 it would for me, but yeah. you know, um, one of the cool things is these uh, what we call evolutionary anachronisms and. It, it ties into my fascination with the interactions between herbs and plants. Now, the, and we, the plants we call evolutionary anachronisms are plants who have developed seeds or spines or toxins um, in order to attract or repel extinct predators or facilitators. So, um, you know, Mormon tea might be considered that for ground sloths. Maybe ground sloths were a primary disperser of, of Mormon tea. But also things uh-huh. like uh, avocados, mangoes, yeah. things like were probably meant to be eaten by mammoths and ground sloths and things like that. But also to- giant tortoises. And giant tortoises were far more abundant than they are now. There were more, w- way more of them around, 
humans happen to like to eat them for dinner. But, um, but they were major seed dispersers as well, and they, they probably still are. So when we talk about giant tortoises, are you talking about like the uh, like the bolson tortoise? Bolsons uh, are still probably dispersing grass seeds, but like Galapagos uh-huh. tortoises, they they there's studies that uh, explain or look at the plants that they they eat, the fruits that they eat, and and germination rates from their feces and things like that. Yeah, they're, they're done. Well, did North American have uh, North America had a giant? There were, there were a number, I think there were several large, at least as big as Bolson tortoises and probably much big. I know for a fact that there were big, way bigger ones in, in Florida, for example, in the sinkholes. They recover big, big tortoise fragments. Um, I see. And uh, so they were a major food source for people. Uh, I happened to come across, with, with my colleagues, come across a, uh, a Clovis site. And a Clovis site is the, the um, very first people to, to walk into North America. And we found uh, a Clovis point, and which is super exciting. Uh, it's yeah. a, and it, it, when you see something that hasn't been seen previously for the last 13 to 15,000 years, it's a rush. But uh, one of the things leading up to that encounter was we were – shooting film on location for the BBC for the new Green Planet series that's going to come out. But as soon as I got out of the truck, I noticed there was something white on the surface, and I saw it was a tortoise shell fossil. And we chose this site randomly, and the predominant fossil uh, on the surface of this area is tortoise large tortoise you can tell any experienced herper will look at these shell fragments and say oh this was a large bolson tortoise and the toes the toes uh the the distal tips or the phalanges they look just like bullets they're 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 conical and blunt Uh like that and they're they're just everywhere, and it really lends a whole nother layer of un- of your understanding and appreciation of modern tortoises when you realize that people, at one point, really depended on these things for food. They were like, yeah, uh, and there and there were thousands per very small area of land, and on a on a rainy day or after a spring morning, and back you know, 13,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, you could probably walk across the surface of the earth on the backs of tortoises in certain areas. <laughs> there were lots of them. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Uh, amazing that you got to, uh, I mean, you're with this film crew and you find, you get out of the truck and there's something. 10 feet away. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Um, it reminds me of something, uh, 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 an old saying that fortune favors the prepared mind. Ah, yes. Yeah, you know? Yes. And uh, you, you just, uh, you were at the right place at the right time, but you had some knowledge that allowed you to, allowed you to, you know, say, hey, this is significant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, in your book, you talk about field notes and, and you know, that's the time to, to write down notes. You know, there's an, there's, if you can, if you can get pleasure out of writing field notes, and not a lot of people do, and I certainly, I'm still working on it. But 
it will favor you like a prepared mind because yeah. the more information you write down, the stronger of a herper you'll be. You'll be recalling all this information that you wouldn't have if you hadn't written it down. Yeah, that's that's true, and and uh, I I do my best to write down as much as I can, especially when I'm somewhere new and uh, I need I need to remember things. It's so it's hard, just... though. I mean, you're you're in a new area and you're like so excited and you want to experience everything right then and there, and then you know you have to write something down. <laughs> yeah, well, I try to do it like. Uh, in my own case, I'll I'll do it while we're eating or right before I drop off to sleep or when I wake up or something. Mm -hmm. Some what we call downtime. I it's guess. a good way yeah. to fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, so you've got uh, the plant thing going. You've got the herb thing going. And I, it sounds like you're into fossils and uh, paleoarchaeology and things mm -hmm. like that as well. Yeah, and uh, that that's really. You know, I mean, I'm not a I'm not an archaeologist by any stretch, but but just being aware of those things uh, makes you closer to other disciplines and um, and just having an open mind and thirst for knowledge. You know, it's it's addict. Knowledge is addicting, and so I hope yeah. I and mean, I'm sure uh, that every any everyone listening here has something that they got turned on to because they like herbs. Yeah. It's a gateway. It's a gateway drug to something else, right? Yes. <laughs> you don't, you never know. Yep. You never know where it's going to lead you. Uh, well, that's awesome. And, and, and uh, I also want to talk, uh, you're also the president of the Tucson Herb Society. Mm -hmm. And uh, before I get into that, I just want to say that I'm always respectful of anyone who uh, manages to, to hold the reins on a herb society because that's just a thankless job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's a labor of love to to do that 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 kind of work. So, uh, well, thank you know, you. much respect there. Thank you so much. It is a labor of love and um I joined as a high as a high school freshman in 2000 and some of the most important uh mentors and moments in my life happened because of the Tucson Herpetological Society. Um Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. And I think we're, right now, we're just really focused on, on maintaining what we've always provided since 1988, which is a newsletter, a regular program, uh, lecture series, uh, and support, uh, grants, and facilitating herp conservation and wildlife conservation in, in the Sonoran Desert. My focus is personally is to maintain our cross-border uh, relations with herpetologists in Mexico and, okay. and things like that. Uh, we just became, um, well, had a, initiated a, a correspondence membership or exchange memberships between us and uh, Fauna del Noroeste, which is translates to Northwestern Fauna. It's a little mm -hmm. NGO in, in Ensenada, Baja, California. And they're a, a small research uh, group that's focused on herps, uh, but birds and small vertebrates and riparian areas. Okay. So, yeah, we, will, we have a Charles Lowe uh, Herpetology Research Fund where we 
are going to get ready to approve another round of, of um, applicants. So we award up to $1,000 for HERP projects. You don't have to be affiliated with a university. Um, right. You can be a HERPer that has a, a really burning question. And as long as you provide us with a proposal based on our, on our requirements, our rubric, I guess, um, you're eligible for money to help see you through that question. And so that's, that's uh, something people should know about. Very good. That's something you should be proud of because you guys have been doing this forever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, I am proud, and I'm really proud of my board who sticks sticks with with me and we stick together and um, basically just try and be um, quiet benefactors. We don't really, you know, we don't yeah. have a herp show or we have unpaid staff. We're all volunteers. So we just try and stick with the core of our mission statement, which is conservation research and education. Right, right. And, and these are trying times for... Many organizations and and uh, herp, herp societies no less, which are always dealing with turnover and um, oh, you know, it's a distractification of the internet and uh, yeah, uh, other things. So so it's always difficult um, to to keep things going. But I think right now, if uh, you can have your Zoom meetings, I'm sure you have some Zoom meetings, and uh, you've learned to dodge and 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 shift and. You know, float like a butterfly, yeah. sting like a bee, yeah. and all that. Uh, so you, you manage to keep things going, and then in the future, uh, one day you'll all be in the, in a room again together. I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. The yeah. the the terrible thing was that um, we had just uh, gone through the hoops for a, a beautiful meeting space, and then the pandemic hit, and it just it was an immediate killjoy. <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, yeah, we have. We have our uh, public Zoom meetings every other month, and so um, this March it'll be Gary Nabhan, and uh, he's going to talk about herp uh, conservation uh, along the Seri coast of Sonora and uh, training oh, cool. training Seri the Seri culture and community uh, to be parabiologists and uh, really own their their natural heritage and and. To protect it, so that's going to be um, at the last Monday of March. Ooh, well, I hope you can send me a link for that. We'll do. So yeah, I can share that. And uh, of course, we want to promote your Herb Society as well. And I'm also interested in that because, like you, I've been to Sonora, and I'm a little familiar with the Surrey culture. And I, I like uh, I like driving down there, and they've got the the giant sculpture of the the Surrey shaman, mm-hmm. and things like that, and it's just very cool. And you. You see that image in a lot of places, and I think uh, people are embrace it down there. Yes, and yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's probably a good segue for us. Um, I want to talk about Mexico and Sonora now. Me too. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here we go, man. <laughs> uh, I I racked my brain today to try and think about where I saw. You wrote an article about the. Chispitas de del Tortuga. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, which is the Nelson's box turtle, and they call it Chispitas, yep. which is uh, little sparks. Yeah, Sparky. Yeah, 
And you wrote this great article about this adventure you had in, in Sonora. Uh, and uh, that was one of the things you ran across in, in this really wild and woolly place. And for the life of me, I cannot remember where oh. I read that or what, what journal or what. I, I can't remember where that was at. Can you, uh, can yeah. you remind me? Yeah, I um, wrote that for medium.com. M-E-D-I-U-M dot com. And it's called, the title is called Tortuga de la Sierra Madre, which is a play on the film Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Ah. And if you, if the listeners have not seen that movie, you should go see it tomorrow. It's a classic. It's an American, it's a classic of American cinema. Uh, Humphrey Bogart. It's one of the, I think it's one of the few movies where he's a villain right and uh yeah well let's let's just say he's he's overcome by the greed that comes with gold yes yeah <laughs> and, and not and a good performance by john houston as well oh so. god there are some <laughs> one-liners in that movie that are timeless and uh yes and there's a herp in the movie and i'm not we're not going to tell what <laughs> but it's a damn great moment or a kitsch it's yeah. classic kitsch yeah uh it's uh we're getting off track yeah, I, I don't care <laughs> i don't care because i i like the movie and i like the book and i like uh uh the book is written by somebody only known as b traven mysterious guy uh, mysterious b traven that's b capital b traven and uh, there's, there, you know, there's a lot of speculation as to, about his life and uh, things that that go on. And you can read up about that elsewhere. But it, yeah, it's a, it's a deep, it's a deep story beyond the movie. There, I really enjoy that. Yes, and there's a great BBC docu on him on YouTube that you can. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah um, that's super. But Mexico, right? Is is for me. Well, my experiences in the Sierra Madre region and and the and Sonora in general, and um, you know the Sierra, the Sierra Madre is a treasure uh, that uh, has so much. I mean, you can go from the the hottest, driest core of North America to uh, sphagnum bogs up in the in the Pine Oak Zone theoretically in the span of one or two days if you want it to probably shouldn't yeah. because you won't see anything but um <laughs> but yeah i mean it's uh sonora for me is a very special place to me but that's where i that's where i have most of my experience um in 2012 uh my good pal matt nordgren also known as happy herper um uh-huh. He was living in Guatemala, and our friend and I um, decided, well, jokingly, we said, well, we should go visit him, drive, drive down and visit him. And the joke turned into a reality, and uh, we drove from Tucson to Antigua, um, and it was, it, was, it was wild. It was a wild ride. I, I don't <laughs> – I'm not sure I, I would recommend it. A trip like that requires like three years, not three months. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, sounds like there's a big story behind that. Yeah, another another <laughs> another day. Yeah. Um, wow. But yeah, spotted box turtles, such a neat creature, and probably what the the ancestral 
living, the, the oldest living box turtle species in the West. Um, the grasslands that we associate with uh, Terrapini ornata um, are actually tropical in origin. They, they evolved out of tropical, I guess, the, the receding edge of the tropics is sort of what happens, what, what's left over when the tropics receded southward, much like the Sonoran Desert. And uh, it's very possible that, that these Terrapini nelsoni is um, ancestral to many of the box turtles. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Um, I, I got to see one. Oh, nice. On my, on my first trip, on my first trip to Mexico in 2011, uh, up in the y- Yucara mm, area. Nice. Um, which was a wild and woolly place, but, uh, I was with my, my friend, uh, CJ, CJ Valpando, and, uh, we were heading, uh, we were, we were driving down the road. We had released a rattlesnake that we had taken photos of. We had put it back where we found it. And, driving back and here's this box turtle clumping across mm. the road and it was one of those moments I'll never I'll never forget that moment yeah. I can still see it in my mind's eye and uh it was just a cool experience and it's just a you know it's it's who, who could not love a box turtle of any kind I know but it it's it's kind of hard to characterize like most people would say well it's just a it's just a box turtle like but it's because it's so familiar but foreign at the same time there's just a tw- yeah there's just a twinge of exoticness about the, the turtle but it's just a like it behaves and acts like any other box turtle it's found in a forest yeah the ju- the juxtaposition there for me was was kind of mind-blowing because where where i live it you know in, in illinois we have eastern box turtles and they're typically a forest or a forest edge species and you know that's 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 their milieu yeah and then I am I am looking at this Chispita, mm-hmm. uh, and it is we're at five thousand feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Know, we're and we're on a, a a plateau with that is just you know it's either grass or rocks mm-hmm. or you know clumps of it's just so different. The habitat is so different, and the fact that you know I'm a mile up in the air above above sea level uh, was just so weird. It yeah, just, yeah. Uh, and it's hard to understand. It's um. One thing that I was talking to my to my friend Matt about is when you look at all of the the herps found in tropical America in in Central America, Southern Mexico, um, you know they're they're in the South and we think of them as Southern species and but they all came from the North: colubrids, box turtles, uh, vipers, and so forth. Went from being temperate to tropical species but we're so fixed on the exoticness of the tropicalness that it's the other way around we see it uh a, a temperate critter in the in the tropics we think oh gosh it's, it's unusual yeah and I, I when you're talking about box turtle radiation to the north there was also some box turtle radiation to the south yes. right i mean you have box turtles down in, in the yucatan as well yeah so. yeah unfortunately uh within the last almost 10 years, but less, um, there's a huge trafficking of these box turtles um, being smuggled out of Mexico and to places like Hong Kong and Tokyo. And um, That's a shame. Uh, they're, they're, being, they're moving out of Mexico, and I don't know to what extent right now, but I remember seeing a lot of them for sale. So it's unfortunate, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it, it may be 
partly due because it's getting harder to, for them to export them from the United States legally. Yeah. So. Yeah, they always. I I guess the the modus operandi is you collect your animals in Mexico and then you you go to Nicaragua or somewhere where the species doesn't occur, so isn't on their list of protected species, and you you pay a bribe to have it written off on, onto a permit and and shipped wherever China. Or, yeah, yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. But, uh, and that's another whole yeah, show. Yeah, that right is, that there, is. I, I was, was going <laughs> to ask you, uh, in your time in Sonora, or in your musings of Sonora, is there any combo of herps that you would like to see, like, together? Because, like, I've always thought seeing a desert tortoise and a boa constrictor uh, under the same ledge or on, near the same tree or in the same vicinity would be, like, a dream photo or a dream experience where <laughs> you're where you just see two wildly different creatures together or any not just in Sonora but what what have you <laughs> always thought of like your dream uh, find or observation? Well, I I think that's uh, I haven't really thought of it in terms of that, but when you when I when I think about that for a minute, uh, the fact that boa constrictors. You can find them in various places in Sonora. You can find them in uh, lower down, but you can also find them up in the mountains. And just the fact that you know, if you're driving along at night, and uh, for example, and and up going up into the mountains east of Hermosillo, and my gosh, we get boa constrictors on the road and uh, little little toads yes. and uh, box spotted box turtles, bo spotted box turtles, and things like that. All in the same road. Yes, and diamondbacks, the boa constrictors yeah. and diamondbacks on the same road. Yeah, and in fact, I've gotten both on the same night, probably within a couple miles cool. of each other. That's great. So, so I had never really thought about that before, but uh, I have to say the, those are those are some interesting groupings. Yeah, that only only happen in Mexico, right? And I, I think I, we owe it all to the the change in elevation, right? And things, right? Things can happen. You can get a, a Gila monster and a beaded lizard. On the same road. Yes. On in the same day. I, That's I tell, crazy too. I tell people to think of the Sonoran Desert region and and all of Sonora as the the receding uh, receding hairline of the tropics. It's it's <laughs> as you go down in latitude uh, or up in latitude, uh, as you go from north to south, and the rain, the annual rainfall decreases or in, increases depending. Uh, you get. You just get this spectrum of of temperate to tropical, and they they overlap as you go. So a a little coral bean tree uh, or a shrub in the Tucson mountains is like this stunted, uh, tortured bundle of sticks on a south facing rock, and as you go south, it becomes a a uh, hundred and fifty foot tree. It's the same species, but it's oh. It existed. It exists in an area that used to be, or very marginally, peripherally, is tropical. So I, I tell people the Sonoran Desert is a drought-stricken, frost-bitten, tropical deciduous forest, and and where where everything's really far apart, and uh, and all you have to do is move south, and you start getting thicker densities of plants, which means 
more diversity of herps and everything else. Um, right. Well, as as you know, we'll go back to boa constrictors for a minute. And I'm sure you know there's been endless discussion about how close to the United States border yeah. boa constrictors come in. And, and you and I, you know, a border, a border is a political, right. a geopolitical thing. And right. it's, it's meaningless in terms of it. We, we like to impose those things on our on our on our landscape, our mental landscape. Right. But uh, you and I both know that probably boa constrictors were that far north back before yeah. the 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 climate yeah. started drying up and and the desert started emerging and moving south and uh, up in those mountains there there were there probably were boa constrictors in what we call the United States. You're you're exactly right and um I mean we south southwestern herpers have probably pondered this forever um and I don't we, we just published a paper and I'm embarrassed to say I don't know what the closest record for boa constrictors is to the United States. But it's pretty darn close. So north of Naclasari de Garcia, and uh, there's an, an old site record or claim, no specimen, of one outside of Imuris, uh, Sonora. So those are pretty, those are, um, Imuris is, is a four-hour drive from Tucson. And Nakosari would be if there were roads straight (laughs) from the border or or something like that. But yeah, you're right. These are are human lines that nature doesn't really know about. But it's funny because there are a number of species that just fall shy of the border, and it's just it seems to be a coincidence that the border just happens to to stop at the northern edge of 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 boa constrictors, of um, uh, Chihuahuan ridge-nosed rattlesnakes, uh, some uh-huh. other things. There's, you know, there's handful, oh, um, neotropical whip snakes, Mastocophus mentovarius is one that gets... Oh, one of my favorites. It's really close. It comes uh, with... It's between Cananea and and uh, Imuris. And, okay, so we're maybe 100 miles... Yeah, something like that. Okay. So they're they're yeah. found in places that look just like Sycamore Canyon. Oh, okay. So, in Arizona. Yeah. Um, but they're, yeah. So, you know, but, uh, what is it, uh, green rat snakes, uh, they come into the United States, obviously, but there are also a number of species that are pushing northward. And maybe that neotropical whip snake, who knows, could be, could be in the United States in the next 30 years, maybe. Or, um, yeah. or indigo snakes. Indigo snakes are in the the Bavispe River drainage, which comes very close to the United States. They they could follow yeah. a certain drainage and make it. It's very interesting to think about these things be, and because we tend to, we look at, at uh, we have field guides and we look in the field guide and we see a range map and things appear to be frozen in time. Mm-hmm. But we're just really looking at a snap snapshot of the current era. Right. And things are always in flux and always on the move. You yes. Know? I mean, I'll I'll give you an, a different example outside of Mexico, and that's, that's the what we call black rat snake, okay, uh, Pantherophis, yes. right? And so these things just barely make it into Minnesota, right? Okay, now. but in a thousand years, I mean, it, they, they're still moving north because we're still we're still doing bounce back from glaciation. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know things like that are also in flux. So there's all, everything is in play, yeah, whether we realize it or not. Yeah. Well, if if any of the listeners are really 
interested in this subject as much as we are. Um, there's <laughs> there's uh, the Agkistradon book by um, uh, Gloyd, Conant and Gloyd, Gloyd and Conant. Uh-huh. There's a whole chapter on the the deep evolutionary history of of Agkistradon and North American snakes during the the glacial periods, and it's I think Tom Van Devender, my my mentor, is e- either wrote it or is co co-author with Roger Conant. But um, I hope that if the, you know anybody listening in, any herpers listening in, start start beginning to think about their favorite species or their their local herpetofauna as like what is what are the things that you're finding telling you about about the past like maybe do a little research and see like oh okay uh spadefoot toads they're they're just a little tiny bit of uh, what used to be a big uh family of frogs or uh narrow mouse toads are are microhylids they're not toads they're this unique group of this odd group of frogs that it's actually mostly found in Asia and uh, South America and really tropical areas. So, yeah. and they kind of hang on. They kind of hang on here, and they've adapted to niche habitats. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love how we've got off on the sub on different subjects here, but this <laughs> is, this this always makes me happy. Um, so, uh, in addition to, and uh, man, we could talk about Sonora forever. Yes. Uh, but I also want to talk about uh, something else. Now, last weekend, and we're, this is being recorded in, in early February, uh, last weekend you were a uh, guest speaker on at the uh, Southwest Park oh, yeah. slash co-park. Uh, Networking uh, extravaganza. That's it, yeah. <laughs> Zoom meeting. We're Zooming our butts Yeah. Up. And so you were guest there, and uh, and I, I did a little bit, and uh, I hung out as much as I could for the for Saturday, and it was it was very interesting to hear all the different talks. But you gave a talk about the Sonoran Desert Toad, the Sonoran Desert Toad. I, I want I want to talk about this because I find this uh, interesting and fascinating because it, we're going to talk about it, and you're going to take this beyond the novelty point, right? You're going to take this, yeah, deeper yeah. It's um... Tell us what about your talk, what your talk was about. So the talk is about Bufo alvarius or Incilius alvarius for the splitters out there. In this case, it really doesn't matter. Um, but in the 80s, 1984, a pamphlet came out saying that you could squeeze the paratoid glands of the Sonoran Desert Toad and smoke, dry and smoke whatever came out of there and get very high or not high you would have a transcendental experience you would have a very very intense experience and that's because and we don't know why the sonoran desert toad is the only vertebrate that produces pure concentrations of 5-MeO DMT and it was a big mystery who figured this out and how because there actually is no there's no concrete evidence that ancient people ever used this species as a psychedelic 
So before before we go any further, uh, let's give a little background to this. So DMT is this this substance that is, can be chemically made in the lab, and and people use it to have these transcendental experiences. But as you say, most most of these experiences that people have with various what we call psychedelic plants or psychotropic plants, whatever yeah. you have peyote, of yeah. course, and you have the ayahuasca vine in Peru, uh, and so people would naturally assume then that the the native peoples partook of this toad. Mm-hmm. And and what you're saying is that it's not true, that it is not something that was co-opted from a, a, an, old, uh, a, an original culture. Right. And this is problematic on a number of, for a number of reasons. But I became, the reason I know anything about all of this is because uh, I was approached by Vice Network to, assist in the production of a of a show about psychedelics called Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia and they wanted a herpetologist and a fixer somebody who knew the region and so forth and little did i know that it would exercise every channel of expertise that i had and as a uh, natural historian as a herpetologist, as somebody who has ties with uh, indigenous cultures. Coincidentally, two years or three years before I had been contacted, the Yaqui tribe had invited myself and Jim Rorobot to give a conservation, amphibian conservation workshop in the Yaqui tribe because Bufo Alvarius had already been extirpated from certain parts of the Yaqui territory. For, for the psychedelic okay. market. So what I did, my, my job was to film toads and their metamorphosis, but also get interviews with Yaki elders and just ask open-ended questions, unsuggestive questions. What, do you, what, how, what role does the toad play in your culture? And there's some really cool stories about toads and they're fascinating and beautiful but none of them have anything to do with smoking 5-MeO-DMT. So, okay. So without you, you were you were going on down the rabbit hole without actually consuming any DMT. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And you know, it's it's you know, psychedelic co- uh, communities will co-opt uh, indigenous motifs in, in order to validate their practices and make money. And toads are being exploited. Uh, on a large scale, and uh, and this is mainly in Sonora, um, but okay. my my intent here is to make you all aware of the the reality, the facts surrounding it, and um, if you observe stuff happening, don't necessarily get involved, but just maybe tell the authorities or tell your game and fish department, and if if it's happening, you know, if people are being hurt or if 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 toads are being hurt and you care enough to about that, then you should do something about it. So tell me what's what's going on now. So folks are going out in the into the desert and, and collecting these things in this by by the sackful, and then they're yeah. they're doing what? How how do they process them? So before this became a huge deal, yeah, it, people would go out and squeeze a gland off a toad and and leave the toad alone and. People start at taking them home and and then releasing them, maybe possibly not even where they found them in the first place. Sure. And 
there's these misguided notions of spirituality and only wanting to do it from the toad because it has the toad spirit or it's a quote-unquote organic or natural source. And uh, those are all sort of self-jokes about or validations <laughs> for doing it. Um, and yeah. on a, so on a philosophical or spiritual level, uh, you uh, expressing the glands from this toad is no different to the toad than being in the jaws of a badger or a coyote or anything. The, the toad really doesn't, doesn't know or care. So, but yes, it, right now, uh, large quantities of toads are being rounded up and really hurt. I mean, there's some of these toads who have been damaged or severely uh, abraded by perpetual expressing of the gland and handling and, and, and so forth. So yeah, it's, you know, they hang around lights, so they're easy to access. They're easy to, to collect. And yeah. um, this is what we call a, uh, a population sink. So you, you, one year you collect X amount of toads and then immediately, uh, immediately replaced by the surrounding toads. And it gives this illusion of, of an infinite supply uh, until yeah. there isn't. Right. Yeah. And then there's the whole sh shift, shifting baseline syndrome yeah. where you don't realize the decline over time. The other, the other uh, irony is that um, the toad is not listed really on any special lists of concern because like a lot of species where there's tons of, of there's just, assumed to be common, like weeds or whatever, um, they tend to get ignored until you turn around and it's too late and you start, by the time you notice that this once common thing is in danger of possibly being threatened, it's usually too late. This is with plants and animals. So it's really, this is another lesson in uh, counting that atrox you saw on the road may not be common uh, in your lifetime. Knock on wood that they stay common, but you know, all yeah. those things, you know, we have to really examine the things that we take for granted or we think that are abundant. Yeah. And, and I, I'm thinking about, I mean, and folks that aren't familiar with, uh, uh, Alvarius as yeah. we call them, these are, these things are about the size of a chihuahua. Right. <laughs> I think it's big. It and they're big. old. Like softball sized toads. Yeah. And, and we really don't understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but we really don't understand their their niche right. in in the in the landscape. And we're not talking about a small toad here. We're talking about a significant carnivore yep. uh, at, at large on the landscape at night. And uh, the, you know, again, we're messing with another rivet on the airplane here in terms, you know, when it comes to the Sonoran Desert yeah. you know, ecology. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's not a good thing to uh, remove all of these large toads from the landscape. I, I would say so. And, um, you know, they're just as iconic as a saguaro or a Gila monster or a tiger rattlesnake. They are, you know, when they're gone, they're going to be gone. And um, so it's my hope that if you're listening to this, that you maybe look at the, this giant toad as in a different way or in a new way and um, maybe discourage people that you know that, are kind of maybe turned on by this fad that that they don't know the entirely about. Yeah, and I'm I I know that 
this thing started back in the eighties, and there were there was somebody wrote a pamphlet about the toad yeah. and under an assumed name, and yeah. um, and I, I don't I've never seen the pamphlet. I don't have much details of, about it, but it's it kind of kicked this thing off. Yes. yes. Uh, and, and I don't. Can you tell me? I mean, was the in the pamphlet? Well, did they did they respect the toad? In in well, did this guy respect the animal, or did he look at it as just something? You I don't could, think you he, know, consume? I don't. I, I, he, if you go to, if if you can, if you want to watch this episode, it's season three, episode one of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. And in the previous episode about it, one of the people they interviewed who cl- claimed to be the author and was basically lying through his teeth. And so after that. That happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Through his toad teeth. Um, but um Subsequent to that, Ken Nelson, the real author, sent a letter to Hamilton Morris saying, I am the author of this pamphlet. I am Albert Most, and I can prove it. And so this episode is mostly about that. It's fascinating, and it's, it's, it's quite dramatic. Uh, cool. Um, let me let me interject here because I, I'm not familiar with Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. Oh. Is is that on like it's Netflix on, or what is it? It's on uh, Amazon and Vice, I think. It's a Vice product. Okay. It's a Vice Network production. Um, I All do right. know for a fact it's on Amazon. Okay. All right. Just want to clarify. It's a it's a series further. basically on the cultural history of psychedelics. It's fascinating. Actually, Sweet. Uh, Hamilton is a chemist and an anthropologist. His dad is Errol Morris, uh, one of the greatest living filmmakers. So, uh, he's, well, let me ask you one sure. question. And I'm, I, we're going to get back yeah. to toads, but do they do they cover uh, uh, what's his name, uh, the serpent and the rainbow, and all? Oh, that stuff? Wade Davis. Uh, uh, Wade Davis no, and uh, tetrodotoxin and things like that. I don't like think that, he or? gets into that, but um, okay. All right, just curious. Uh, he does do Cambo, which is the Philomedusa hunting magic. Uh-huh. And that that okay. is a that is a legitimate cultural tie. Psychedelic. It's not even it's not a psychedelic. It's actually a to, it's a toxic thing, but does it, it's yeah. for hunting magic. Um, well, this this is fascinating to me, so I can't wait to go and look this up and and watch these because I think this this stuff is interesting and I have a long history. Uh, I think I've First read The Serpent and the Rainbow. Oh, man. Uh, which is well, a book by uh, Wade Davis. Yes. Yeah, a terrible movie, but a great book. But uh, I, re- I read that uh, 20, 25 years ago. I thought it was just a fascinating subject. It is so. a fascinating subject. And um, I, it's bittersweet because uh, Wade Davis is, is uh, a fascinating figure. He was uh, the student of Richard Schultes, the, the pioneer in psychedelic research, eth- ethno-pharmacology. Uh, I, yeah. And um, but he and Andrew Weil, another big uh, homeopathic name, uh, a naturopathic name, uh, uh, they wrote the first scientific article qualifying the effects of Buffalvarius uh, inhalation. Um, uh, oh, yeah, they did. Okay. and so this was somewhat problematic because they they guessed without very much, well, they just conjectured that indigenous people probably must have done this and uh we're at an hour i hope i'm not overdoing it um no 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 they they kind of set the platform for the possibility that indigenous people smoked the the secretions of buffalo various 
so I kind of I kind of poke at that a little bit and say that you know this is so in in your mind you're you're quite certain that is not a, a true I'm very true. I, I've sleuthed uh, out of necessity you know there's a number of um, toad remains associated with uh, shamanic burials in southern Mexico um, the toad features on in in the underworld a sign of fertility and rain and all stability because it's on the ground but now that all makes sense to me given their you know yeah. i mean they all thousands of offspring and tadpoles yeah. and water that that all makes a lot of um, sense at, so what would you do if you saw all these toad remains uh, and you wanted to you know and you knew that there was all this speculation around psychedelic toads you'd probably look at try and identify the remains and that's what they did, and they all keyed out to marine toads, Rhinella horida, no. Rhinella marina, whatever it is now. So, yeah, I think it's horribilis up. Yeah, here. horribilis. So, that's the beauty of science, right? It's like you, you can more or less make some strong conclusions. Um, so, uh, I and I'm I'm always interrupting you, but. Another interesting thing here is that you find yourself enmeshed. You're in the fabric of this really big story yes. that has all these threads on it and all of these people and all these directions. Yeah. So that, that must have been interesting to you as you got into this further and further. I'm kind of trying to roll with the punches. Um, my last interview was with Forbes magazine um, online and uh, – uh, talks about the ethical considerations of all this. Um, spoken at the at various psychedelic uh, organizations, and kind of the elephant in the room is that smoking five meo DMT, whether it's uh, from a toad or from or whether you take it from, however you inhale it, has the ability to override your addiction to hard drugs like methamphetamines and opiates and it, it's it's uh, there's something there but it's a tool that is very p- powerful and we don't know how to wield it yet and if you if you have i've been contacted by so many people who are at rock bottom and on, on some level and they want me to acquire a toad for them or a substance for them and oh. it's not an it's not a pill. It's not like a overnight. I mean, it is like as soon as you come out of your experience, uh, your your dependency on on those substances is gone. But you really need at least two professional therapists to help you stay sober. And I and see. that's why it's not just a recreational drug. It's something that people are really onto for other bigger reasons so there's also this and i feel i feel sorry for those me folks. too um, yeah there, there's this there's this whole uh, uh angle of desperation to it yes right people are trying they want any they want any help they can yeah. get uh i i really didn't understand that about dmt now i know that's also and we're here we are we're welcome to <laughs> i feel like i'm on a i feel like i'm on a joe Rogan show <laughs> Talking about psychedelics, but I, I know that the, there's been some use of psilocybin mushrooms for the same reason. Yep. There's some uh, success with those to break uh, addiction. Those have as real well. roots in cultural practices. You know, psilocy- psilocybin yeah. was the first 
group therapy in 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 early people in Oaxaca. You know, it was a group experience, yeah. and pe- it was a it was a way for people to air out the laundry and really um, tackle p- real problems in in a pro- in a appropriated setting. You had a, a shaman, a huh. shaman who was there for you, and was making sure every everyone was being heard, and that you know you you were allowed to cry, you were allowed to laugh, you were allowed to untangle whatever it is. Um, so psychedelic, I'm all for psychedelics because they have real potential, but we need to be good earthlings about it. We have to be very reasonable about it. Yeah. Well, you have to be careful too, right? right? Like you're talking about having professionals with you. and, and People so on, have so died from smoking various secretions. Not a lot, but it's a, it's a real possibility. So there's that. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's good. That's good to know. Uh, that's good to know. And this, you know, this subject is just so, it's fascinating, but it's also, it just goes in so many yeah, different directions. Yeah, it is. Because we're also, I mean, we're talking about, we're, we're talking about this, the the psychedelic pharm, pharmacopoeia yeah. as it is in itself, but we're also talking about use, uh, ancient, how cultures use those mm-hmm. things and how we ap- appropriate or in some case misappropriate mm-hmm. th- those things and, you know, dreaming up. We're just dreaming up a whole uh, culture or mythology about the uh, Bufo Alvarius out of nothing. Right. It's just spun out of midair, out of thin air, I'm, you know. I'm going to say a really cool detail because you should still watch the show. Um, you know, the big question was like, who found this out and how? Because yeah. it's really gutsy to just the, – the, the, the guy who was lying said, well, I just – I knew that there was bufotenin, which is a very mild psychedelic. It's found in all toads. That's why it's called bufotenin. Uh, and so he, he said he just started uh, sprinkling it on his cigarettes. And when he landed on bufo alvarius, he discovered this great thing. Um, but that's, not, that's absolutely not the case. Um, what happened was Ken Nelson was a uh, self-taught scholar, just like us. And he was he read an article in Omni magazine, I think. Is that does that ring a bell? Omni, um, yeah. An archaeologist in the Midwest, maybe in the mounds up there, found a bunch of toad remains. It seems ceremonial. And Ken, this got his curiosity going, and he started. This was before the internet. He went to the libraries and just started sleuthing for information and the Vittorio Spramer was doing a lot of uh, biochemistry of toad toad secretions and there's one article and that says in the title 5-MeO DMT and all these other things in the skin of bufoil various ah so a light, a light went, went off. off and he drove to Gila Arizona and and did it then he wrote the the pamphlet and i think part of it was I don't think he suspected that this would take off back in the 80s like it would now. I mean, the world was different. The world, relatively speaking, was much smaller. So he, he, yes. he this is like a, a, he wrote this as a, um, as homework for a technical writing class in college. 
you know, that tells you that he wasn't really thinking about it in a, in this, the way it turned out, it would turn out now. Right. And I'm sure, you know, these days nobody's insulated anymore. No. Uh, but back then pre-internet, you know, you can sort of do, go on these paths and do these things and, Wikipedia and holes. stay relatively, yeah, you can stay relatively obscure while you're doing it. Right, right. right. And, you know, he yeah. did suspect, you know, he, he, he suspected to the to the extent that he put the golden goose fable of Aesop in the in the pamphlet, and that was lost by most people, uh, unlost most readers. So, um, uh, but he came forward to uh, near the end of his death, uh, near, towards the end of his life. Excuse me, um, he came forward to settle the the cloud of mystery. Uh, he died of Parkinson's. And, um, and so Hamilton, after doing this, decided to reissue the pamphlet with a, with a new foreword with Ken's name on the cover and, um, but address the real threats to the toad. Uh, and then in the back, a laboratory synthesis of 5-MeO-DMT and the okay. first printing, uh, sold out in 24 hours. Uh, with over a hundred thousand dollars for that went to the Michael J. Fox Foundation. So the next two printings have already sold out, but all the merchandise, uh, pamphlets, stickers, shirts associated with Hamilton's fundraising is uh, going. As we speak, there's a Buffwell Various Monitoring Task Force in in Sonora, and uh, it's my intention uh, at the Herb Society to hold that money for them so they can use it for uh, population monitoring and things like that. Cool. Will you, will you do any public outreach with that? Is there, is that part of the I, goal? I think so. I, and it would mostly be in Spanish and di- uh, directed at those high poaching areas in Sonora, but um Probably, you know, do we see a problem in the United I States with this? Is there... Knock on, I'm knocking on my desk. Would because because <laughs> I think it's not at the level that we're seeing it in Sonora, and um, okay. I hope it stays that way. And I think yeah. as her- well, well, let me ask you this: when you when you you said you talked to some group some groups that are psychedelic yeah. proponents, or you've talked to them about this, and what is what is their reaction when you when you say, "Hey, this." this it's DMT, but but look, you're you're Lucas is having all these toes, and when you can get DMT yeah. from other sources, why would yeah. you do this? Are they are they open and receptive? It's to that, really or? mixed, and I think uh, a lot of the older folks who have been in the community are just uh, conveniently uh, ignore a lot of that, and there are okay. a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, explanations or uh, excuses that they give for you know, oh, I'm really nice to the toad, I calm them down, or I'll induce dormancy, which is silly, but, you know, they'll, all these sort of beating around the bush, and, but the younger ones, the younger folks are definitely more receptive, and, um, okay. which is encouraging, and, um, and perhaps they're not doing the cultural appropriation, no. the mythical cultural appropriation that doesn't really right, exist. Right, right. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, um, when I guess it comes, it falls down on showing, comes down on showing the real 
the underbelly, I guess, the dark underbelly of, of holding a mirror up to the psychedelic community saying, look, this is, you guys can't support this. Or are, are you actually wanting to support this? And, and, you know, we should, I should point out too, it, we joke, uh, people joke all the time about licking yeah. toads, you know, I'm not, not licking that's toads. A, uh, that's uh, an know, urban myth. And that's where this, right. But that's where yeah, this comes from. Right. right? It was, I it's, mean, it, it's, it, it comes from. It's like the our the first case of media screwing reality up, right? The new the media. So, um, the first wave of toad smoking, which came out in the early '90s, because the pamphlet was published in '85. So by the '90s, it was an urban. It became an urban legend that people were licking toads, and you should know, people should know that. Um, the secretions are cardiac glycosides. So those are those are things. What's that, that mean? It's a it's a substance that will relax your heart muscles permanently if you do too much. Yeah. What? Yeah. So then your heart muscles don't work yeah. properly. Is what you're saying? At some point, they no they longer no longer contract. So that's why dogs and cats will just flop over dead if they if they get a hold of a toad uh, and don't. And don't get their mouths rinsed out. Their heart, they die of cardiac arrest. It, and um, this is the, the same thing that makes oleander toxic. Um, the reason the bufoil variate secretion is smoked is because 5-MeO-DMT is the only heat-stable molecule within the secretions. Like, uh, so all of those dangerous things disintegrate with heat except 5-MeO-DMT. The twist is the I twist see. is that the recent analysis of the secretions from the paratoid gland was almost pure 5-MeO-DMT. So there's there's still a lot of questions about how this toad produces it, why, what. There's why? like every angle. And if anybody has a clue, please. Um, I've heard it all, and I still can't figure out what the evolutionary significance or impetus or reason is. For 5-MeO-DMT, because this is the only vertebrate. It's not the, it's not toad. It's this one toad. Uh, there's a coral that produces 5-MeO-DMT in large quantities. This is the only a, a coral. coral. Yeah. Um, as in coral, as in coral yes, reef. Yeah. Wow. So okay. there's, uh, it's a big. It's a would make a great dissertation or or academic question. If you had a lab and real, yeah. real resources to figure it out, but there's nothing. Well, I'm thinking. Uh, I'm thinking here that that Robert, you 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 might have a material here for a book oh, about all yeah. this. Yeah, I. It's 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 racking up. I hope maybe you're working on maybe you're working on something. Like I am. That, so that'd yeah, be great. yeah. One yeah. last thing I want to say about toads that maybe people have thought about is the defense mechanisms in toads and amphibians is a, a, a adaptation or a modification of water balance in dry climates. So the so, sodium and potassium ion exchange that helps maintain healthy water balance in the body of amphibians became a defense mechanism. Just like uh, we say that snake venom was an advent of modified saliva as a di for digestion. So in toads, those cardiac glycosides and those defensive chemicals are in the realm of the physiological process for water balance. 
sodium and potassium ion exchange. So the glands, yeah. the glands primary, or not primary, but the proto purpose of that gland was to pull those things from osmotically from the, the water in yes. the tissues and then ex extrude them, much like a salt yeah, gland does. Yeah, like uh, iguanas will will uh, sneeze salt salt water out of their nose, right. or, or sea turtles and crocodiles uh, release it as tears. Um, yeah. So the toad toad. Wow, I I did not know that. took this to a whole whole different <laughs> whole different level. Wow. Um, Fascinating. And bufotenin is or bufotenides are a whole group of of chemicals that. Uh, because it was first discovered in toads, it got the name, the root word, bufo. But bufotenin is a very mild psychedelic, and it's actually found in us. We have bufotenin in our, in our body liquids, and in people with autism and schizophrenia, it's in a much higher concentration in, in blood and what? urine. Yeah. Um, so bufotenin is actually not restricted to toads. It's found in plants. It's found in a wide swath of things. But because it was first discovered in toads, it got the name bufotenin. I see. So we don't want people to get the wrong end of the stick no, here on no. this. <laughs> it has nothing to do with right. toads. <laughs> the, the subject, the, the substance is just named after toads. Right. It doesn't really... Sound. Something you get from handling right, toads. Right, right. Just wash your hands. You can't get it yeah. through your skin or anything. That's fascinating as well. There's just there's no end to this. There's no bottom yeah. to this. Either. Herps again. Herps are the <laughs> gateway drug to you know like the best cases case scenarios in evolution and adaptation and reproductive strategies and body plans. Herps are like textbook. They've done most of it, you know. Yeah, and for a long yeah. time. So uh, let's let's think about the. Young Robert Villa, 2000, year 2000, is just getting involved <laughs> with the Tucson Herp Society and has no idea what's in store no, for him. No, no idea. Uh, pretty wild. And I'm very grateful. And um, I am very happy to, to share because that's, that's my, uh, my paying it on or paying it forward. It's like, okay, I've, I've got a, been given a gift and now I have to carry it forward for everyone else so i really really appreciate you having me on i really appreciate your show well thank and you i'm glad that you gave me a platform to, to talk about uh our our now favorite toad <laughs> the sonoran desert toad needs yeah. our needs our uh we need to speak up for it yeah uh and on that note too uh you also have uh you're connected with a fundraising effort that's it's all some Interesting yeah, shirts yeah. So, and other other things that support the the, the project or the uh, tell me about the shirt and tell me who 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 benefits. So because I, I'm gonna get me one of these oh, shirts. Oh sure. Here. Um, when when the first episode of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia came out on Soren Desert Toads, I was really frustrated with the outcome. I mean, I I I did everything I could, but. The fact is that the, the demographics of the show and the novelty of all this, the actual message kind of gets glossed over. And so we produced a, uh, my friend runs a, a company called Cream Design and Print. So we came up with shirts and posters and, and messaging uh, about this toad. And we wanted to reverse engineer the imagery. 
So the psychedelic imagery, the the the, the design is that uh, this toad from the pamphlet coming out of a Grateful Dead skull, upside down Grateful Dead skull, and there's oh. the molecule 5-MeO-DMT, which says you know use a, a laboratory source or a non-toad source, and there's a a toad skeleton and a and a human skeletonized hand, which represents just don't touch toads. Uh, you could give them a disease, or they they could they could be actually vectors for chytrid. Um, they don't get infected by chytrid, but if you move them between bodies of water, they can carry the chytrid to to amphibians that are vulnerable for to it. So, yeah, they they serve as a reservoir species. Yeah, yeah which is a term I just recently. Oh. Learned. So I wanted to I wanted to throw that around like I know what I'm well, talking about. Well, yeah. I I just learned that term now. Yeah. So, um, anyways, um, there's a poster, there's a shirt. If you go to creamforever.com, you can you can buy a shirt. Um, it's cream as I'll put some links in the show notes, so we'll get that done. But who benefits? So, uh, the Tucson Tucson Herpetological Society gets uh, a, a good cut of of the sales from from the original toad design, and um, we're okay. Uh, our intention is to earmark that for the toad once the appropriate uh, task force is, is assembled. There's okay. another toad series associated with Hamilton through the same company, and those also get uh, earmarked for toad conservation, but also Parkinson's research and the legal fees of a chemist for his defense for, for char- who was charged with producing 5-MeO-DMT, he was convicted because he developed the process, the synthesis, laboratory synthesis for artificial 5-MeO-DMT. And then another part of the proceeds goes to uh, Gail Patterson, who is the original artist of the pamphlet. Um, People have recently been putting her artwork on shirts and stuff, and she hasn't been getting anything. So the copyright's been reinstated and and now we're trying to pay it okay. back well i i like i like hearing that because it's it's so easy to rip off people who do good yeah. work in in artistic yeah. areas and so i i like to see that and i you know i so su- try to support when i can the actual artists when yeah. possible gail patterson shout out to her Okay. So, and, and uh, so we'll put all that in the show notes so we can get folks. Uh, and I, I always like these uh, great t shirts or hurt related t shirts. So, this, this will be this is right a up my special alley, one. So, yeah. Uh, so, I'm interested in picking one up. Very good. Uh, so, we have, I have talked about so many things. And, and the fact that you've, you've turned into this sort of Renaissance guy, you know, you're, you're, you're a naturalist and botanist, you know, herpetology ethnoecology, pharmacology, paleoarchaeology. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're in deep, man. You're there's just no in hope deep. for me. <laughs> As we say in the plant world, there's no, there's no 12-step program, and if there were, we don't want to have one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's all. And you're also a musician. You, you play the violin, correct? Yeah. So I've, I've seen uh, some of your, your clips and you play some, some really Thank cool you. stuff. And uh, yeah. you've been playing your, your whole life or I what's going on with that? I started in seventh grade. No, well, I started taking private lessons in seventh grade. I had a violin when I was in fourth grade, but 
a terrifying first day of junior high. Giant building to memorize my locker combination. I was scared. And I walk into the auditorium for orchestra with my little Suzuki violin and the, the teacher's uh-huh. tuning instruments at the piano. I walk up and I see she has a Galapagos tortoise on her shirt. <laughs> uh. And... And, and it's a famous, uh, it used to be a well-made uh, shirt. It's a Galapagos tortoise with a vermilion flycatcher on, on the top of its shell. And I had my sh- turtle shirt on as the turtles of the southeastern United States, a bunch of shells. And uh, okay. I kid you not, my, I introduce myself and I go, do you like turtles? <laughs> 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 and Lee Oler says, yes, well. <laughs> I do. And I have, you know, it was cinched, you know, she, she, she's still my best friend and, um, she has a oh, wow. backyard full of box turtles and desert tortoises. And I learned about those things from her and, and she also cared. She saw that I, that I really wanted to play the violin. She found private lessons for me. So I've been playing violin ever nice. since, and uh, she introduced me to the Tucson Harp Society, and uh, it's, it's all, all connected. connected if you yeah, go deep it's enough. A, it takes a village. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I've been playing for that long. I can't do the math right now, but I've long enough, and I don't do it professionally. I just love music. I just started learning jazz yeah. theory, which you and I are big fans of. The great jazz players, and um, you know, I always yeah. We were just talking about that before we started the recording. Do you ever listen to jazz for breakfast? No, I don't know. Oh what that no, is, it's but... it's I, I it's a joke. I, I if you you should for me jazz in the morning really is a great way to kickstart your day. It's something I don't know. I say I. If you guys like jazz, try listening to it in the morning for breakfast. Kind of peps puts a pep in your step. Okay. See now, like, I like it when I'm road ah. cruising, and and this will this drives <laughs> some of my friends nuts because, you know, good for you. Uh, I, I have friends who listen. They listen to death metal or yeah. or, or uh, all kinds of crazy things. Country, uh, but uh, yeah, or or Steel Panther or <laughs> all. <laughs> but uh, but that's a shout out to a couple of my buddies. But uh, but I, I if I'm in the desert at late at night, I'm I want to. Yeah. You know, I, I want some yeah. Miles Davis. Well, or I think or, I think it's about uh, time you know. for us to go on a road cruise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we we enjoy that. We we'd have a good time with. Uh, we, I'm sure, we could come together on on some good jazz. To, oh to yeah, listen to, so. yeah. So I, it's it was fun just to talk to you about that too, and and uh, because you know we're we're, I mean, jazz is not as pervasive as we'd no, like it to no. be, but. Uh, but I think there's something for everyone in that. In that yeah. Oh, in totally. That idiom, you know. Yes. I can't say totally. Even if you, even if you watch Charlie Brown Christmas, yeah. man, you're getting some oh, great my jazz. Gosh. Yeah. I can't know. say totally anymore without <laughs> thinking of a terrible pun of the toad. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. the vi- there's a part of the the bow of the violin called the frog, which is pretty funny. Yeah. And they did. Uh, all the, <laughs> all the, <laughs> back in the day, people would apply toad secretions to their fingers to stop them from sweating 
and their bow and their bow hand. And I think even they would use toad skin on the the grip of the bow. Um, yeah. No way. Yeah. Look it up. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's all connected, okay. man. <laughs> 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 yeah, right, right back at me there. That's awesome. Uh, so I don't know what else we need to talk about. I I can't wait to uh, life to get to some semblance of normal. And uh, uh, next time I'm out in Arizona, I'd like to to look sure. you up and uh, hang out a little bit. It'd be kind of fun uh, meet you in It'd person. Uh, but I, I have to say that I I'm just so glad to be able to just sit and talk to you because that was that's what's all about. That's great, man. Podcasts yeah. are so, great. Yeah, and then uh, I'm in the catbird seat because I get to talk to you first and hear what you have to say first before anybody else. So, well, yeah. Uh, now I think this is the first time me. I've mentioned the the toad task force. So, uh, fingers crossed, uh, we get something together sooner than later. Um, yeah, I mean it's just this weird accident thing that happens because one guy does one thing. That's all it uh, takes. <laughs> 30, 35 years ago and and we have to take care of our toads because yeah. you know that one incident so it's uh ripples on a pond right, and all that right. you know exactly yeah uh i maybe we should end on a uh, it might be cool to end on a on a positive story um about this okay. is, um, something i learned from the yaki people in my research um with them so the the yaki word for toad is bobok b-o-b-o-k but the sonoran desert toad has a very distinct name it's different called cuarepa and this is where natural history and cultural history are the same thing because you have to know that the sonoran desert toad is usually around before monsoon rain i think the red spotted toads are as well but Sonoran desert toads are already active before the rain. And I think that's because they're associated with permanent bodies of water. They have longer metamorphosis period. Encilius is a tropical clade of toads, et cetera, et cetera. So the story sure. goes that back in the first world where humans and animals and plants and mountains and everything was sort of congruous with each other, um, all the beings, all the, the people, folks, critters were dying of thirst. So they had a, a meeting, big meeting. What are we going to do? Yuku, the rain god, is, is being a jerk. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we've got to do something. So one by one, all the different types of birds say, well, I'll fly up there and knock on his door. Let's see what the big deal is. So first bird, sparrow, goes up. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, Mr. Yuku, um, we're pretty damn thirsty down there. Uh, could you, you mind raining on us a bit? He goes, well, you guys have not been praying to me very much. And, uh, you know, if you guys pray for me, to me a little bit more, uh, you know, I'll send, I'll send the rain down. So you fly down and de- deliver the message. So the bird would start flying and people down below would see the clouds turn dark and get super windy and lightning. And, and this little bird is so excited. It's going to tell everyone what to do and it's going to be fine again. But the rain god kills 
the bird with the lightning, smites the bird with lightning and and wind and all that. So the message is never delivered, and so people are just seeing like all this stuff happen and then nothing, which is sort of like real monsoon. And yeah. uh, so raven tries it, eagle tries it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And Mr. Toad goes, "I've got an idea." And bat, give me your wings for a second. Hold my beer. Watch this. <laughs> and uh, so, sure enough, uh, Toad gets a bag of corn and and his kids to follow him along. And they hop up to the tallest mountain, uh, fly up with bat's wings to through the clouds to to Yuku. And his kids are hiding all along the way. And Toad knocks on Yuku's door. He goes, Yuku, come on, man. What, what's, what's it going to take? We're, we really we need to live. Give us some water, please. Fine. Go back down and tell him to pray for me. to me. Okay. Well, Toad starts hopping away, but he hides, hides under a rock or something. And Yuku comes storming out looking for, for Kwarepa. And Kwarepa's hiding, but his kid is just a little further down. Yuku thinks it's Kwarepa, so he goes further down, and his kid hides. And then he sees his other kid, and so forth. You can imagine how this happens. Rain finally comes down to Earth, and everyone gets water. And the path that Yuku took to Earth is the Rio Yaqui, the largest river in northwestern Mexico. Lifeblood of, of yeah. the region, the the lifeblood of the Yaqui, who are actually fighting for their own water rights at this moment. But the, all the places he left corn and sprouted are the, the seven uh, ancestral uh, towns of the Yaqui. So next time you see Mr. Alvarius, you thank him for bringing us our yearly monsoon. That's a great story. I love that. I love that. How the, uh, the kids keep drawing him. Yep. drawn to the rain god further and further down until the the water it, yep. the, there you know it rain and eventually the people get the rain that's that's pretty awesome and i'll, I'll never look at the uh yaki river isn't it majestic i mean have you have you crossed the bridge <laughs> on highway 16 at the rio yaki yeah it's so yes. magical i remember when i first when i first uh arrived there i thought oh i'm here i'm in the tropics like there's probably yeah. a beaded lizard over there, if I, <laughs> or a boa constrictor over there. Um, <laughs> it's really a magical, yeah. magical place. Um, and to this day, yeah. I uh, I got my uh, lifer yaki sliders oh, there sweet. too, which are gigantic. You got sliders. a yaki slider cool. in the yaki river. That's awesome. Yeah, they're yeah. big, aren't they? Oh, they're huge. Yeah. They're huge. They look. They make radiard sliders look like, like uh, dinosaur yeah, turtles. Yeah. They're just monsters. Uh, I've so, never. Yeah, very cool. I've experience. never. Have I seen one? That's one of the few endemic herps of Sonora. There's Ditmar's horn lizard. There's uh, yeah. uh, Dickerson's collared lizard. The Yaki slider, and this is Antusia now. It's a handful of handful of yeah. narrow endemics. Yeah, and I think everybody wants to see Ditmar's horned lizard because it's got the yeah. Name and that's another that's another right. show we should do. That's a really cool story that that we should. Oh, okay. That's a really cool story. All right. 
Okay. Well, I think we've just established that you're going to have to come back on and uh, continue our conversation. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming on. I I can't tell you how much I enjoyed our conversation. And uh, it's just great to talk to you and get to see you for the first time. And uh, uh, I look forward to more conversations. Likewise. It's been a long time coming. So uh, let's do it again. Indeed. Okay. Thank you again so much. Hey everyone, I'm back with another epilogue. I hope you all enjoyed my talk with Robert Villa. I know I did, and I love it when I have no idea where my guest is going to take the show, and this one was no exception. And I also love the connectedness of everything we talked about, be it herpetology or the lore and rituals of indigenous peoples or the drug culture or pop culture and uh, everything in between. Now, it looks like Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia is available on Hulu and Amazon Prime, in case you're interested in checking that out. I haven't watched it yet, but I look forward to checking out the epitodes. Well, I've used that one before. About our friend, the Quarepa. Uh, The first epitode is in Season 2, and the other one opens up Season 3, so check it out. Now, back near the beginning of our conversation, we talked about Terrapini Nelsoni, a.k.a. Chispitas, or Sparky, as Robert calls them. And we mentioned an article that Robert wrote about them for Medium.com back in the day, and I have included a link in the show notes for that article. And there's some great pictures in there to go along with the text. Now, another thing we touched on was the possibility of some Mexican herbs that come very close to the U.S. border, and some of the speculations that uh, some of those species may have existed further north in the past or maybe are there now in secret, or perhaps they may occur there in the future. And one of the critters we mentioned was the boa constrictor, which comes pretty close. If you look in the field guide to the Amphibians and Reptiles of Sonora, Mexico, which is a really great book by James Rorabaugh and Julio Limos Espinal, uh, boa constrictors, uh, to, to be technically precise, boa imperador, live up in the mountains and foothills and range as far north as the Magdalena Palm Canyon, which is maybe 15 miles south of Magdalena. And that means the boas are perhaps 60, 70 miles south of the border. So how about that? And Robert, after we talked, I remembered that I have encountered Boa Imperador and the Sierra Madre tortoises on the same hike in Sonora uh, near Alamos. And uh, they were maybe a couple hundred meters apart. So, yeah, uh, acute proximity is a very possible thing. And, folks, uh, for more on this border species business, you may want to check out a thread called Possible Country Records for the U.S., which was kicked off by our friend Don Cascavel uh, in the Old Field Herp Forum about 10 years ago. Uh, now, I've got a link to that in the show notes as well. There's some thoughtful discussion in there, and along with some animated waving of semi-turgid members, as per usual. You can't get away from that on Field Herp Forum. But all in all, it's worth a look. And a few things have changed since that thread was kicked off. Now, one last related thing. The Tucson Herpetological Society's guest speaker for March will be Gary Nabhan. And the topic will be traditional knowledge and conservation of reptiles with the Seri people which is related to some of the things Robert and I talked about, and that's a Monday, March 22nd Zoom meeting. So if you can't catch that, you can catch probably uh, catch up on it when it's recorded and put out there. And, uh, well, thanks for listening, everyone.
That's it for episode 37. I want to thank Robert Villa for coming on the show. I sure enjoyed our conversation, Robert, and I liked how you finished it up with the tale from the Siri people. That was very cool. And folks, please see the show notes for all of the linkages I mentioned during the epilogue. I also want to say thank you once more to Tom Ellis and all of the folks who support the show. And if you would like to throw in a few bucks to keep the show rolling, please visit patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is one word. Or you can contact me directly for Venmo and PayPal options. Now, before I go, remember that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at somuchpingle.com. And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And as I mentioned earlier, I am also at somuchpingle at gmail.com. You can email me there, and I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves, and don't forget to hurt better.